This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Well, good morning everyone, and it is very good indeed uh, to be here. We're keeping it in the family, obviously. And there we are. I think I was the easiest person to ask. Uh, at uh, our church, we, I didn't mention we go to St Matthias over there, and uh, one, I remember once uh, we had a visitor uh, in the congregation, and after the service, was, she sort of beetled out straight away, so I, I intercepted and said, hello, good to see you, welcome, and she, I said, Are you okay? She said, no prophecies, and I said, what? She said, there's no prophecy here, and I said, oh, uh, I said, we preach the word of God. She said, there's no prophecies and proceeded to go out. And I said, well, well, we, we love each other. And she said, there's no prophecy, I'm leaving. Is this a good church? Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that enlightened by your word, taught by your spirit, we may respond with faith and obedience. For Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, someone once called 1 Corinthians 13 uh, Jesus' most famous sermon, uh, which is a bit of a ludicrous mistake. Uh, but at a deeper level, it's the truth, isn't it? And the passage captures a key element of the teaching of Jesus. And many people have observed over the years, look, it's like a portrait of Jesus, this remarkable passage. Indeed, you could say rightly that it's been inspired by the spirit of Jesus, written by the Apostle Paul. And it was written to, because we've got to take notice of who it was written to, to understand it. It was written to the noisy, quarrelsome, ego-driven, compromised, factionalized church at Corinth. I've never heard of such a church myself, and I've been around churches for years. That is just a joke. The quintessential unpleasant family produced this gem, this piece of gold. We need to remember the audience of this 1 Corinthians 13. It's not surprising, I guess, given how powerful it is as a piece of work, that it turns up at weddings and funerals very often. Indeed, it was read at the wedding of Princess Diana and Charles, and it was read at her funeral as well. Interesting, isn't it? That's okay, but the real context of the passage is what matters, and the real context is us, the church. It is written to us. We own it. We listen to it with our spiritual ears. For although we may not be noisy and divided charismatics, we have our own failings. We too can be divisive. We too can compromise with the world. We too can be noisy and unforgiving and proud and ego-driven. Yes, we need this passage. The chapter, if you look at it, chapter 13, have it open by all means. It's a good idea to read the passage while the preacher is speaking. I'll just give you a tip here that it's good to do that because if it gets boring, you can read on uh, and you still look as though you're listening. Okay, so the passage falls into three parts uh, and uh, it has a distinct beginning, verses uh, 1 to 3. It has a distinct middle part, verses uh, 4 through to uh, 7, and then it's finale, verses 8 following. Uh, 
What we're going to do this morning is look at the beginning and the end first and then come back to the bit in the middle where we hear most profoundly who we are and ought to be. So beginning and end. It begins with this great point that lack of love will bring down the greatest. If you look at what the Apostle's saying here, he is speaking of the very people that we like to admire most. Christian history is studded with the names of great ones, the ones who have done great things for God, astonishing things for God. And rightly, I guess, we name our churches after them. We name our schools after them. We name our children after the great ones. We write books about them. We tell stories about them. We explain how they've stood all glorious for Jesus Christ. Some of these folks have exhibited extraordinary gifts. The apostle, following the words about the charismatic gifts in chapter 12, refers to speaking in tongues of men and of angels. Wow. He instances prophetic powers and the understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge. He recalls the words of Jesus about faith which can move mountains. And he says some will exhibit that. He goes further into the actions that anyone of us may and should admire. He refers to those who give away their entire fortune. And then to the greatest peak of all, the Himalaya of the lot, those who yield up their lives in the fires of martyrdom for Jesus Christ. Such, surely, are the heroes of Christendom, the inspiration of us all. He's gone to the boundaries. There is nothing anyone can do for Christ more than giving away all their fortune and dying in the fires of martyrdom. But if these things are done without love, They are mere noise, empty gestures, fruitless religiosity, no better than the pagans. For God is love. His Son bore our sins out of love. The first fruit of his indwelling spirit is love. And we are no better than the Pharisees of old. If love is not our motive, if love does not guide our thoughts and our words and our actions, if we do not love God and love those for whom we give ourselves, if we do not walk the way of love, then the whole business is little more than trash. Your religious deeds are then a curse for you and a burden to others if it is not love which drives them, love which guides them, love which accompanies them right to the end. Speaking of which, now let's turn to the end of the passage, verses 8 to 13, where we see that love is our true destiny. This is where we're heading. In the ancient world, love was not really regarded as one of the, as the chief of virtues. In fact, 
it's interesting, as people have moved away from the Christian faith, once more, love is not treated with all that importance. People now talk about values, of course, instead of virtues. An interesting change, virtues being something we look towards, values being something that we invent for ourselves, the original sin, of course. But amongst our secular friends, uh, they prefer to speak about things like tolerance. Oh, that's a virtue. It's on the scale of virtues, it's, it's a virtue. Tolerance. But you notice that it's a stand-back virtue. Don't let me interfere, virtue. Whereas the virtue that the New Testament demands of us is love. The love of neighbour, the love of God. Love for the modern mind is too demanding. It requires the utter gift of yourself to the other. It requires you to be other person-centred. It challenges the whole idea that we worship strength, that the strong person is entitled to have his or her way. It's astonishing, isn't it? Absolutely extraordinary. One of the miracles of the Bible that when you hear about God, the ultimate power, the omnipotent, the all-powerful, that he is love. For love is nothing if it is not humble, if it is not centred on the other rather than demanding its own way. And so, as it says here, look, verse 8, love never ends. It is as eternal as God himself, for God is love. Even the most spectacular gifts that you can possibly imagine, the gifts that catch the eye and say, wow, look at that, this is a gifted person, even the most spectacular gifts will lapse as low, no longer needed. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. Even the great human cultural achievements will crumble and decay. Even the work of science will pale. At this moment, he says, and this is hard for us to listen to, it is hard. He says, we are like children. We think of ourselves as grown-ups. The children have now left. No, he says, you're a child. You are but a child in this life. Your perceptions and your understandings are true as far as they go, but they are narrow and partial. We speak and we think and we reason like children in God's universe. We only catch a glimpse of the reality, as if we were looking at a tarnished mirror he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I put aside childish things. We've not yet arrived at our final destination. Indeed, we are as far removed as a child is from an adult. A glorious future awaits you. A future in which our puny understanding will be no more, and we will see our Saviour face to face, knowing him as he now knows us. Then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully understood. Have you ever thought about this? How can we possibly love God? 
The first commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. The second commandment, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. How can we ever love God? Well, the secret here is this, and it's an astonishing secret. The secret here is this, we love him because he first loved us. And it's the recognition that we do not earn his love. We do not merit his love. We are totally unworthy of his love, and yet he loves us, that awakens within us the possibility, the first stirrings that one day in all eternity will be complete of our love for this one who loved us first. We have been loved by the God who has paid the price of true love in redeeming us. It's interesting in referring, to the, in referring to the love of God two or three times in Scripture, it doesn't say God loves us. It, that's true, of course, but it says God loved us. Always in thinking of the love of God, the cross of Christ is central. For that is how we know that God loves us, even though we are described as his enemies. And in the Bible that has that special word, grace, and as those who are saved through Jesus Christ, we are commanded to be graceful to each other, to love each other as he has loved us. Any love we have, any love we're capable of, arises from being loved by God, being held in the mighty arms of God, undeserving though we are. I've been thinking about heaven a lot recently. No, not because I'm getting close. Uh, I've been thinking about it professionally. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Certainly, for us who believe in Jesus, what is heaven like, you may ask, and that's good. For us, heaven, whatever else it will be, will centre on Jesus as he himself will be centred on his Father. Heaven means that we will be with him. Heaven means that we will be in him. Heaven means that we will be like him, thank God. Heaven means that we will be for him in all our activities. In a sense, that's all we need to know. That's good enough. We will be in him, for him, with him, like him. We will be at rest, but not idle. Life will be an embodied life as resurrected, but not merely spiritual. Our eternal lives are bound to be filled with purpose and meaning. We will not be alone, for it is the church that is saved, the bride of Christ, which will fill and populate heaven. Our heavenly state is going to be deeply relational. We will be what God has intended us to be as human beings since before the fall, and yet far more than that as well, with no tears, no fears, no grief, no death, no evil, but only the praises of God. There will still be faith. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, as he tells us here, 
there will still be faith because God rules us by his word. There will still be hope because life goes on. But above all, above all and indefeasibly, there will be love. For the greatest of these is love. Which brings me to the middle of the passage. And the question, well, what's love like? What's it look like? Well, you know already, because you know what the love of God looks like. Love is utterly, sacrificially committed to the good of the other person. That's love. Not all love is good, of course. Mere love in itself is not good. Love can be, and often is, warped by sin. Love can destroy you. The question is not love, it's who and what you love. The Bible warns us not to love the world. The Pharisees, we are told, loved money and therefore Jesus unambiguously said, you cannot love God and money. No, not all love is good. Lust can slay you. The worship of another person can be idolatrous. Our hearts are made to love, but our sinful hearts find every excuse to love the things that turn us away from the living God. No, not all love is good. But you, you know that you are loved by God. Examine yourselves, therefore. This morning, today, this passage calls you to examine yourself. I want you to ask questions about yourself. Whom do I love? What do I love? And if your love is a God substitute, repent and turn to God and the grace of God and be transformed into his likeness, which is your true destiny and the place of your greatest joy. Your love will not be perfect, for you're still a sinner. But it must be directed. No love. (laughs) My love is not perfect. No love is perfect. We confess our sins to God. But our love must be directed outward, away from ourselves, outward towards God and neighbor. And that is true love. How do I test my love? How, how does it show itself? And here we look at the central bit of this passage in particular. And Paul puts love up against some of its opponents. He says, if you're treated with contempt and scorn, then he says, love is patient and kind. Think. I want you to think. Paul wants you to think. So the Spirit wants you to think. How is my love? Am I, am I like this? Love is patient and kind. You are in awe of wealth and power. Love does not envy and it does not boast. You have power over others in your life. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love puts the needs of others first. Love, he says, does not insist on its own way. Love sees into the soul's of others. Love has eyes to see what the other needs. It looks into the souls of others with compassion and so it is not irritable and resentful, he says. Indeed, love speaks and practices forgiveness. 
have you come here today with an unforgiving heart? There is no sort of schadenfreude with love, no rejoicing at the downfall of another, no smiles at the triumph of evil. Love isn't mere empathy. You might be born with empathy. But love is sharp-eyed and it rejoices in the truth. It's not mere emotions swirling this way and that, for it rejoices in the truth. And think of the love he reveals in verse 7. Love bears all things, for genuine love cannot fade away. Love believes all things, for genuine love comes out of our trust in the word of God. Love hopes all things, because love is only possible when we know that love will triumph in the end. Love endures all things, because love never ends. But rather, like faith and hope, it will abide forever with and in God. And the greatest of these is love. And so, I ask you a question. Who is listening? Oh, I hope we're all listening in a way. 1 Corinthians 13, as I said, is one of the most famous Bible passages, and I think I said that it was read at Diana's wedding and at her funeral. But the chapter isn't set up for weddings and funerals. By being aimed at the Corinthians, in the first place, it's aimed at you. You who lay claim to being a Christian believer and may cover yourself with the glory of your achievements as a Christian. It's aimed in the first place at you, who lay claim to being a believer. The passage asks you to think this morning, to think, who am I? I profess Christ, but am I like Christ? Do I follow this more excellent way that he has given us this morning? Is the Holy Spirit of love taming my unruly heart day by day, changing me from one degree of glory to another, shaping my sinful will, guarding my wicked tongue, and turning me to the Lord who has saved me and for the world for which he has died? Is love making my life? But even these questions aren't quite on target. For the passage is directed not to individuals, actually, though as individuals we should listen to it. It's directed to the church, your local church, this church. It's directed the family of God's people. Now let me say that one of the rules of being a Jensen is that we don't talk about private things, so I have no idea how this church goes. I say that in advance of what I'm about to say, lest you think I have information, but I'm going to ask you some questions. Are all the spiritual gifts that God has poured out on this congregation, without doubt, the spiritual gifts, are they all used for the good of all? Or are we using them to boost our own power and self-esteem and prestige? What are we doing with the gifts God has given us? Have we all, every one of us, set ourselves, set ourselves deliberately to the task of serving our family gathered here this morning? Here, are we serving in word? Are we serving in deed? Are we serving in speech with each other? Are we serving in prayer for each other to build each other up in the Lord? Chapter 14. 
Let me ask you, are you irritated by the people here? Love them. Are you angry with some people here? Forgive them. Do you despise some people here? Befriend them and serve them. Are you indifferent to the people here? Drink at the well of God's eternal love for you and for his church. Repent and turn to these your brothers and sisters here this morning with humility and love. May this be a congregation filled with the active, powerful, humble, serving love of the Lord so that people will say of you, see how these Christians love one another to the glory of the God who has loved us and taught us what love really is. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the love that saved the world. We thank you for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, our Heavenly Father, that this church and all churches may show forth the love of Christ, that we may welcome the stranger, that we may feed the hungry, that we may visit those in prison, that we may care for one another and listen to each other and shepherd each other and care for each other. We pray that we may forgive each other. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we will be truly the bride of Christ, getting ready for an eternity of living in your love. And we pray for these mercies, Heavenly Father, unworthy as we are, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.